Um, but hey, thank you guys so much. I, I just, I don't know, it's so fun to worship together, especially because I know our worship team and I know their relationship with Jesus and how real and authentic it is. And it's not always peaches and cream. Sometimes uh, worship comes from some really hard things that we've been through, right? And so, and it's just, it's, it's powerful to be able to worship together um, as well, because all of us um, are coming from our own experiences and and situations, so I just I just really appreciate that, and especially like that song. Um, I was like, sorry, Lauren Daigle, but Ryan is. is <laughs> I mean, I don't want her to see this online and then say, oh, you think I know? You're great, but Ryan's just God's gifted him very strongly too. So, so there you go. No, um, but I, I love that song because it's kind of like no matter what we feel, it doesn't always mean that it's real. Right, and and that's why it's so important to to regularly worship and together and to be reminded of what is true, what is real, how does God see us when we feel weak? Good, because then God's strength is made perfect in that weakness, right? And and it's just so refreshing to have truth just spoken into our lives and for us to be able to cry our hearts out to God. So thank you guys so much. I really appreciate that. So um, speaking of feeling uh, weak. Um, uh, I've told this story a long time ago, but uh, Lone Peak, you can see it right up there. Uh, my buddy, this is when we lived here the first time, we lived up in North Lehigh, um, had a buddy that was kind of like, Jason, we got to go hike and backpack up Lone Peak. Have any, anybody gone up to Lone Peak before? Almost. almost. If, if Billy says almost, you know how difficult it is, right? <laughs> Stephanie, you made it all the way up there? Okay, did you go all the way up to the cliff there? What's that? What's that? Yeah. Aw, chivalry's not dead. Well, my buddy didn't carry my pack, even though he should have. So we were, we were, he, he knew better. He was a Boy Scout. He goes, oh yeah, when we were Boy Scouts, we climbed it all the time. And I was like, okay, I've never, I'm from Nebraska. Like, I've never backpacked anything. I backpacked to school and that was about it, right? And so I was like, I'm throwing in everything, you know, like, like, a, a, you know, all sorts of stuff. And and I weigh my backpack, and I think it was like 48 pounds. It was ridiculous. Roughly about what uh, Joel was holding up here last week, right? And, uh, but anyhow, um, I was like, okay, you've done this before. I'm going to put my life in your hands, right? You say you're a Boy Scout, I'm going to trust. Because tr- Boy Scouts are like, yeah, yeah, right, right? And no offense. Any Boy Scouts in here? I should, I should read the room before how aggressive I go with this. Ah! <laughs> So there we go. But anyhow, so I, I, like this was in the days before you had all trails on your phone and you could literally like, beep, 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 you are off trail, you know, like watch out. What are, we, what are you doing, right? Uh, this is in the days back when you would get on MapQuest and print out directions. Any, where are my people at? Where are my people at? Right? There we go. Okay. There's a lot of us. Boomers unite. There we go. Um, but anyhow, so, so I was like, okay, you know what you're doing. I'm going to pack up my backpack. We're going to go, right? And so we hop in his, in, his, uh, in his car, and we're like driving around trying to find a trailhead. And, and we drive, and we drive, and we drive, and he goes, I think this is the trailhead. I was like, okay, whatever. We get all our stuff on, and we're going to backpack up. We're going to spend the night up in the, in the cirque up there and then, and then come down the next day. And so we're like, okay, this is the trail. Um, and we start hiking and hiking and hiking, and all of a sudden, boom, we come right back out to another road. Oh, well, maybe that wasn't it. Let's look around for another trail. We're dry. Long story short, we turned a 15-and-a-half-mile hike into roughly a 20-mile hike, all while we were carrying our 40-, 50-pound packs. Um, I wasn't very thrilled. He was very upset because he was so mad at himself. I remember this. I remember this. And apparently he didn't remember it, right? But I was like, I was just long for the ride. I was trying to keep him calm because he was very, very mad at himself, right? So what lesson did I learn? Well, the first one is never trust a Boy Scout with your life in the woods. (laughs) Again, this is my truth. I'm just speaking it, right? So there we go. I'm just kidding, just kidding. Um, To his defense, there had been a lot of development up there, and so it did not look like it did when he was a kid back in the the 30s. So... um, (laughs) So just kidding. He was like two years older than me, so I can't razz him too much. But anyhow, um, no, but the, 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 the real lesson I learned is the paths that we choose in life really matter, right? Like, like we can either choose a smart path and we can get to where we want to go, but sometimes there's twists and turns along the way and how we handle it really, really matters. We need to be careful. 
So let me ask you a couple questions. Have you ever experienced a time in your life where life didn't go as you thought it would or thought it should? Probably a lot of us have, right? Thank you. So then the follow-up question is, how did you handle it? How did you handle it? What effect did it have on you, on those around you, and maybe even more importantly is what effect did it have on your perception of and or relationship with God? Because a lot of times we start going down the paths and guess what? We're blaming the Boy Scout, right? AKA, we're blaming God. This is your fault. This is your fault. The, you know, and, and a lot of times we can take it out on God. We can take it out on the round of people, on the people around us. Well, this morning, we're going to continue to take a look at the, the story, the life of David, um, a man after God's own heart. And we're going to see how he handled um, a season of his life that was much more bizarre twists and turns than my little adventure up Lone Peak, right? And as we dig in, uh, let's look at kind of what we see going through his head and his heart and what he handled, uh, how he handled things. So this morning, we're actually going to be digging into 1 Samuel chapter uh, 24, but to, to kind of paint the picture, so to speak, so that we understand this story in chapter 24, we need to go back to, to 1 Samuel chapter 18. And it tells this story about how Saul's son and future prince, Jonathan, um, actually becomes best friends with David. Now remember, Saul is the first king of, of Israel, right? He is, anoint, he, is, he is anointed, he is coronated, he is, is in, and he has a son named Jonathan um, who should be the rightful prince of the nation of Israel. After Saul's gone, Jonathan should take over. But Saul's a selfish person who's all about his glory and not God's, and he's going by his own stuff, at his own, he's relying on his own strength. And so God says, that's not going to fly. So he, he removes the, the anointing of kingship on Saul, and he goes and he anoints this little runt David who's, who's tending to the sheep, right? And so then there's this awkward time in between, between uh, David's anointing and his coronation, right? And so we're, we're kind of picking up in between here, and it's very interesting because Jonathan should have hated David. I mean, if you were going to inherit a kingdom... And all you had to do is wait for the old man to, to kick the bucket. And all of a sudden, here comes this hot shot little David, and he comes in. If you were Jonathan, what would you think of David? You're taking my kingdom. You are taking what is rightfully mine. That's the script that was supposed to happen. But what do we see in chapter 18, verse 1? The Hebrew actually says, I love how the Hebrew actually says this, because like NLT, like it's great and everything like that, but I kind of water some things down. It's easy to understand, but then you always have to go back to the original language. The actual Hebrew says this, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his self. That is strong friendship. Now that word knit, kasar, literally means to be tied, to be bound together. They're inseparable. You remember your childhood friends, wherever he would go or she would go, you would go also. And like nothing could split you apart. You were besties for life, right? And then that's cool word is this, this word loved is actually ahav. And yes, there is a romantic element, and some people will try to say, oh, they, they had a homosexual relationship. That's a complete plagiarism. It's not what was meant here. Because most often that word ahav in the Old Testament refers to familial, like family, or friendship relationships. And so you have Jonathan and David. They should be enemies who want to kill each other, and they become inseparable best friends. It was kind of fun because uh, recently I was talking with a friend of mine and, and he was saying, hey, actually, Jonathan is probably one of my favorite characters in the entire, entire Bible because he shows real Christ-like sacrificial love. And so it kind of challenged me. I was like, oh, I was going to kind of leave Jonathan out, but I'm going to kind of... And it was fun then this week, I see, as, as we're building up here, and it all kind of helps us understand David isn't the only man after God's own heart here. And what's, what's crazy is that David gets all the spotlight, but here's Jonathan, who's just giving and giving and giving. He accepts the path that God has him on. And we're going to see just how deep that path gets and how much he trusts God and how much he glorifies God through his choices. 
So in, um, to, to, to solidify this friendship, to, to sh- this demonstrate how deep this goes, in 1 Samuel 18, 3 and 4, John actually gives David his robe, his sword and his bow, and his belt. Now, this is more than just a, a, a Swifty friendship bracelet swap, okay? Sorry, had to throw that in there today, right? Don't hate me. Um, robe means royalty. It means prince, like being a prince. And so he literally forfeits his status in the kingdom to his best friend. He gives it to him. His sword and his bow represent strength and power. He says, I'm giving the power to you. I surrender this to you. I trust you. It's clear that God's anointing is on you. And so I, I surrender that. I'm not going to cling to it like my dad did. And then, and then the interesting thing, uh, too, is about the belt. The belt, they would actually, a lot of times, you know, in the old westerns, how many notches are in your belt, right? It was kind of like they would actually have symbols of accomplishments and honor on their belts. And it was also to, to kind of keep things together, right? And so he says, I am surrendering that to you. It's not about my honor. It's not about my accolades. It's not about my glory. I want to push that to you. David and Jonathan's friendship mirrors so many other friendships in the Bible. You look at how close Jesus was with his disciples, especially um, the inner circle of that. I mean, that goes so deep. You look at, you look at Paul and Timothy. These, these guys are out on the front. You look at Ruth and Boaz. Like, or, uh, yeah, yeah, Ruth and Boaz. You know, you look at these friendships that are God-honoring, and there's loyalty, and there is this Christ-like selflessness where they surrender. And what's cool is that these friendships are based on four things. One, <clears throat> they are, they're based on a commitment to God and not just superficial common interests and hobbies. Number two, they didn't let outside circumstances ruin or define their friendship. John should have hated David, but instead he loved him as himself. Number three, the challenges actually grew and deepened their friendship. We like to say that conflict is the price we pay for deeper levels of intimacy. That's why we, I think that's why God put us into these little C churches, because guess what? We're going to rub shoulders. We're going to hurt each other. We're going to offend each other. Those are not, they, they reveal our sinfulness. And what happens is that we can either say, well, forget you. I'm done. This, is, this church is trash. I'm going to go to the next one. And it's sort of like, and what do we do? We go from church to church to church to church. What's the common denominator? Me. <laughs> right? Like, like that's, that's where we miss out on that sanctification process where God says, he reveals to us, hey, guess what? Y'all need Jesus. Y'all need Jesus, right? So, so that's where the circumstances didn't define or hinder them. In fact, they grew them. The challenges grew and deepened their friendship. And then fourth, their loyalty lasted to the end. Because it, was based on Jesus, because it was based on God, because it was an internal thing instead of an external thing, because challenges were opportunities to grow, it lasted to the very end. So um, there's, there's Jonathan, right? We're going to see him throughout the, the story this morning. So um, in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 5, it says that David was successful in whatever Saul asked him to do. Good, right? Well, not if you're Saul. Because Saul says, go and do this. Okay, I did it perfectly. Go and do this. Okay, I did. And he goes and does it perfectly, right? And so it starts to drive Saul crazy. In, in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 6 and 9, we just see how deep this goes. 1 Samuel 18, verse 6. When the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistines, women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet Saul. They sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. This was their song. Saul has killed his thousands. And Saul's kind of like, heck yeah, I'm the man, I'm the man. And then the women keep on singing. And David, his tens of thousands. What? This made Saul very angry. What's this, he said? They credit David with tens of thousands and me with only thousands? Next, they'll be making him their king. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. There is trouble in paradise, right? 
David starts becoming more popular than Saul, and Saul's jealousy literally drives him crazy. There's a note where in verse 10, and this isn't the first time because we see this earlier too, where it says a tormenting spirit from God started to antagonize Saul. Now, I had somebody actually ask, hey, I've kept on reading, and what, what in the world? God's sending evil spirits? And what's really interesting on that is that this cannot be God's spirit because God is not evil, so an evil spirit cannot come from God himself. But we see this to where God allowed it. Now, we could say, that's not very nice. That's not very fair. Like, wouldn't God protect us? God loves us. He protects us. But he's also not going to control us and stand in the way of what we're really wanting. I firmly believe that in this passage, and I might misunderstand this, but I firmly believe that if we continually go against God, he's going to say, go right ahead. It's going to break my heart. You don't have to do this. I've already paid the price for this. But if you insist, go. See what happens down that path. And so Saul goes crazy. He, he keeps on having all these issues, and, and he's just tormented, right? And sometimes I wonder if God wants to expedite us getting to the bottom of the barrel, to the end of our hope. Because, because it, as long as we think we're fine without him, <clears throat> we're just going to continue to do the same things over and over again. We're going to be frustrated. It's kind of like, okay, get to the end of the rope and then see what you think of me, right? Like, I, I want to be humble in that and loving and gracious, but sometimes it, it's kind of like we have, to, we have to see where the end of the path that we choose to go on actually gets us. And Saul just keeps on hitting up against that over and over again. So, Saul devises a genius scheme to get rid of David. He says to, say, to David, um, if you go into that Philistine camp and you get 100 trophies, if you know your Bible history, if you don't, just, just read into 18 there, kind of a unique uh, trophy, a very painful uh, trophy. Um, and he says, if you bring me back 100 trophies from the Philistine camp, then you can have my daughter, Michael, who loves you so much. And so let's, you know, let's look. Let's remember this play in the playbook of, oh, I want to get rid of you, so I'm going to send you into, into the battle. So, I mean, you're going to get killed. I can get rid of you this way. You know what story I'm talking about, right? We'll get to it in a couple weeks. David and Bathsheba. And Uriah, oops, I messed up. I'm going to get rid of the evidence by sending you into battle, right? He learns that from Saul. So Saul tries to get rid of David. And so what does David do? He goes into the Philistine camp, and he doesn't come back with 100 trophies. He has 200 trophies. There's a lot of hurting dudes in the Philistine camp, okay? Um, Saul realized at that moment that God really was with David. It wasn't just some punk kid that he was going to be able to control and manipulate and get rid of that easily, right? David is more and more successful, which drives Saul even more and more crazy to where he is kind of like, I have to get rid of him no matter what. <laughs> just read chapter 18. You'll get the joke. Just like, thank you. Um, yeah, there we go. Um, all right. So in, then in 1 Samuel 19 and 20, um, John... Um, Jonathan and uh, Michal, Michael, uh, his, his sister, Saul's daughter, uh, David's wife, actually step in several more times to warn David. Like they literally risk their own lives to save and warn David. And uh, um, there's this tragic moment actually where um, Saul even turns on his own son, Jonathan. And in chapter 20, verses 30 through 33, um, sorry for the language here, but um, I'm going to read it as it is. Um, it says, Saul boiled with rage at Jonathan, you stupid son of a whore, who sw he swore at him. Do you think I don't know what you want him, that, that, sorry, do you think I don't know that you want him to be the king in your place, shaming yourself and your mother? You see the irony right there? He just said, you son of a whore, but then he says, you just shamed your mother. Saul's irrational. He's not thinking through anything right at this point. And it gets worse. As long as that son of Jesse is alive, you'll never be king. Now go and get him so I can kill him. But why should he be put to death? Jonathan asked his father. What has he done? 
Then Jonathan hurled his spear at Jonathan, intending to kill him. Same thing he did to David. So at last, Jonathan realized that his father was really determined to kill David. Can you imagine trying to pin your own son against the wall with the spear? What is, I mean, this is so wrong. It's so out of whack. This is not, you start to see the difference here, right? But once again, Jonathan shows his sacrificial and selfless loyalty and love to his friend, even at the expense of himself. And then in, in chapters 21 and 22, David, David obviously runs away. And guess what? Soldiers start to join him. At this point, it says that 400 soldiers actually join him. And so he's out there with his, he's like, well, I got an army now. I got to feed him. And so he goes into this town and he talks with the priest and he says, hey, I need, I need food and I need weapons, right? And so he gets food for his soldiers. And the, the priest, I don't know how the priest ended up with this, but he says, I have Goliath's sword. You want that? And he goes, yes, <laughs> I, I've done mighty things with that thing already, right? And so he helps him. But the problem is, is that Saul finds out that this priest helped him. And so what does Saul do? He goes in. He doesn't just kill that priest. He kills all 85 priests in that town. And not just the priests, but their wives, their children, their siblings, their parents, their cousins, their aunts, their uncles, their nieces, their nephews, and all their animals. Mass bloodshed just because they helped David. And then in chapter 23, in the midst of being chased by Saul, David finds out that a town, that an Israelite town is being attacked by the Philistines. And so what does he do? He's running for his life, but yet he has this army in one of the towns in his future kingdom is being attacked. So what does he do? I'm going to go defend the town at the expense of his own life, right? So he takes his men and he goes and defeats the Philistines and saves the town. But in true human fashion, what does the town do? How do they thank him? They go rat David out to Saul and says, yeah, hey, David's in our town. He just saved us, but hey, if you want to kill him, he's here, right? So then Saul comes in too. At this point, it says in chapter 23 that, that David was up to 600 soldiers. And so he takes all of his soldiers up into the hills to go and hide. Once again, Jonathan risks his life to go and find David and to encourage him and warn him in this process. Now again, David gets betrayed by another, by another uh, uh, village and, and they're like, hey, Saul, he's here if you want to come and get him. And so Saul is closing in. And then right then he gets word that a Philistine army is, is attacking another village. And so Saul feels obliged to, well, I guess David did it. And so he has to go do it too, right? And so he leaves just in the neck of time. But then in chapter 24, we see that Saul returns as soon as possible, and he's closing in on David once again. And this is where we pick up the story. In verse 3, it says, again, I just, I love this. Once a youth pastor, always a youth pastor. My seventh grade inner child will not ever die. Uh, This is great because it says that Saul goes into, into this cave, right? In these hills, there was all these caves that shepherds would use to house their flocks. They would seek shelter from the storm. Like, like it was like, you know, portable buildings out in the woods, right? And so, so Saul's kind of like, oh, my stomach is kind of hurting me. I need to go into the, and, and relieve myself, right? So he's in there using the bathroom, okay? I love the Bible. It's so much fun. Um, <clears throat> little does he know that just a little bit further into that cave is David and his army. Now, what's crazy is kind of like, how big of a cave? I I was researching, they were saying they would have literally hundreds, if not thousands of people sometimes in these caves. And so, you know, further in there, um, there's the army. So we pick up in uh, chapter 24, uh, verse 4. It says this, Now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. Man, it sure is nice to have good friends who have your back and can guide you wisely, right? Like clearly God wants you to kill him because he's over there squatting in the corner of the cave and you can go and kill him. He's, he does, he's not armed. He's vulnerable. God delivered him into your hands, right? Well... Um, does God actually say this? Does God say, you are the hunted, now you get to become the hunter? That feels really good in the flesh. 
And it might have made really sense. And I think his, his, his soldiers really, really meant well by saying this. But God doesn't really say this. How often do we confuse our desires and our feelings with reality and or God's will? Just because something seems to make sense in my mind and it feels right to me, doesn't mean that it's really right. In the Bible, it says mass chaos ensues when all the people do what's right in their own eyes. I love how Ali's dad puts it. He goes, if truth is relative, then we just need to live out our truth. But what happens when we have 8 billion different truths? If we're all living out our different truths, our truths are going to conflict with each other, right? So just because something seems right and feels right doesn't mean that it's right or that it's God's will. How often do we allow our circumstances to control us instead of looking to God to define our circumstances? Did you catch that? How often do our circumstances define and control us instead of God defining and helping us navigate our circumstances? It's easy to surround ourselves with voices and and people and influences that lead us down seemingly right paths that aren't the right path. You should do this, you should do this, but should I? Did God really advise us to do this? And the most dangerous thing is when it's done in God's name. They could have said, David, this is maybe an opportunity. Maybe ask God if this is the right thing to do. Instead, they said, God said to do this. Here's the thing, is, is I've, I've learned this, is that it's so easy to, as soon as you say, well, God told me, God called me, God did this, God did this. We can't argue with each other. I mean, we can, but now we're looking like jerks, right? Like, like I always laugh. There was a, there was a, a friend of mine in, in, uh, in a previous church that he would, he would talk about himself in third person when God was speaking to him. And, and it was funny because he says, well, God was talking with Merle the other day. And I was like, wait, you Merle or a different Merle? Because you just talked with your... Like, like, but it was like, I'm confused right now. This whole first, third person thing gets really confusing in English. But, but you know, it was, it, was, it was crazy because they can say things in God's name, but it doesn't mean that it's right. Even friends with seemingly good intentions can still give us bad advice and lead us down bad paths. We can't just turn off our brain. We have to continue to look, look to God. So what did David do in the last part of verse 4? So David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. Innocent, right? Kind of funny, kind of clever. I heard him, but I didn't kill him. So yay me, right? Like that, that seems like something that was kind of fun and, and, you know, like you get the point, right? Well, what's interesting is that in that culture, when you grasped the hem of a robe, it meant you were declaring dependence and loyalty to that person. So you, you would cling, and it was a thing of honor, and I surrender, and I, and I, like, you, I place myself under your sovereignty. To cut off the hem of the rope is a deep, dishonoring insult. It's disloyal. It, it's, it's almost kind of like how Jesus says, ah, the Bible says, you know, the law says don't to kill each other, but I say, if you say raka, you fool, you've already killed them in your heart. And so to cut off the hem is killing them without killing them, right? And so um, it seems good and clever, um, but, and, and he probably felt very justified in it for settling the score on his own, um, but did it really honor God? Sometimes it's really easy to sacrifice our integrity, our character, and our trust in God at the altar of immediate results. Instead of saying, God, what do you want from me? It's kind of like, well, I think this makes sense, so I'm going to do it, right? And, and the thing is, is when we've been wronged, when we've been hurt, we feel very, very justified to settle this score on our own. It's a very natural human sinful thing, right? I, I, I just, I really appreciate the saying, we can be right, but not in the right. I can be very right with how I read this, but it doesn't mean that how I'm going to respond or act, because, act out in response to that. I can act out in a very unchristlike way, even though I'm, I'm right, but I'm not in the right. 
When we do this, it reveals four things. Number one, we don't believe God is sovereign or powerful. When we take things into our own hands at the disobedience of God, it shows us that we question his power. We question his sovereignty. Number two, we don't believe that God loves us. We don't trust that he has our, our, our best interest in mind. And when things start to get painful or there's, there's, there's suffering involved, right? Like, well, where's God in all of this? We question his love for us. Third, we think life is all about us. Others are just role players in the background of our lives, right? It's we come to the forefront. We come to the center. We're the focus. And then number four is that God's approval isn't enough for us. I need the affection, uh, approval. I need to be this. I need to be exceptional. I need this. I need that. When the Apostle Paul says in Galatians, am I trying to serve man or God? Because I can't serve both. You can't serve two masters. So it's either what God says about me or I'm going to live for you. And I am a recovering insecureholic, right? Like, like I live for the approval of the people around me. I needed to be accepted. I needed to be exceptional. I needed to be special. And so I acted out based on that. And, and then whenever I'd mess up, I was like, ah. And I remember hearing that. Am I trying to serve God or man? Because I can't serve both. That was like <clears throat> heart ripped out, right? I was totally exposed, <laughs> All four of these are examples of either unbelief or wrong belief. Then in verse 5, it says this, But then David's conscience began, uh, began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. Again, that word conscious, it literally means his heart, his soul, his inner being. And it says bothered. That does not even skim the surface of how deep that word actually goes. It means stricken beaten, destroyed, shred to pieces. His inner being was destroyed at what he had just done. Now, what he could do is he could double down. He could ignore the Holy Spirit on that, and he can say, well, but I, but I, I needed to do that. He needed to learn his lesson. He needed this. He needed that. And I, I'm the one, right? He could have insisted on that. But instead, he surrendered to God. He listened to God's prompting in his life. And so verse 6 and, and the first part of uh, verse 7 said, He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord the King. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has chosen him. So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. <clears throat> Again, David was right, and he didn't want to be not in the right. He didn't want to do the wrong thing, for the wrong reason, right? Or maybe even the quote-unquote right thing for the wrong reason. He's out of line and distrusting God's plan and God's timing. I love these two quotes here. It says, the means we use to accomplish a goal are just as important as the goal we're trying to accomplish. Breaking God's commands is not a great way to accomplish God's purposes. How often do we fudge on this? How often do we compromise on this? It's kind of like, eh, I can cut some corners because it's for something good, right? How we do things is just important as what we do. He also probably realized that when he came into power, how he came into power would also be the way that he would go out of power. He knew if he had assassinate the king to get into power, he would probably also be assassinated for the next king to come into power. I think he was very wise in not setting that into motion, right? Now, killing Saul would have probably seemed like it was going to cure and solve all of David's problems. But he realized that he would be going against God. And he didn't want to take things into his own hands. He kind of did, and he just he felt bad because he wasn't trusting God. He didn't want to dishonor God. Now, it can be tempting to take things into our own hands, right? Like some are really, really obvious, like stealing and cheating and, and violence and affairs and abuse and drugs and alcohol abuse and addiction and all these different things, right? The, the big ones, right? But they can also be very subtle. The escapism. I personally struggle with how much I watch TV and scroll stupid social media, 
right? Like, most of the time, I'm reading Greenhouse social media, and that's okay. God likes that, right? But, but, um, but no, I mean, uh, how many times we just sit there for, for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, hour and a half, and then after I'm done, I was kind of like, what did I, why? I feel sick. Why did I do that, right? Why am I doing that? Retail therapy, politics, emotional affairs, control, gossip, we can all fill in the blanks, right? The problem is, is that it's not big and little, it's all wrong, <laughs> I'm not saying social media is wrong. I'm not saying that alcohol is wrong. I'm not saying that, that any of that's wrong in and of itself. But when we start to use it as a tool to take things into our own hands and get what we want, despite God, because sometimes God might say, stop all the noise in your life. I, wanna, I want you to hear me. I always make the joke, sometimes I don't like to be alone because I don't like the company right? Like, like all the voices in my head when I'm by myself. I hear all these voices in my head. Let God speak into that, right? So then we finish out this story in the second part of uh, verse 7. After Saul had left the cave and gone on his way, David came out and shouted after him, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked around, David bowed low before him. Then he shouted to Saul, Why do you listen to the people who say I am trying to harm you? This very day you can see with your own eyes isn't uh, see with your own eyes it isn't true for the lord placed you at my mercy back there in the cave some of my men told me to kill you but i spared you for i said i will never harm the king he is the lord's anointed one look my father at what i have in my hand it is a piece of the hem of your robe i cut it off but i didn't kill you this proves that i am not trying to harm you and that i have not sinned against you even though you have been hunting me to kill me May the Lord judge between us. Perhaps the Lord will punish you for what you are trying to do to me, but I will never harm you. As the old proverb says, from evil people come evil deeds. He's kind of saying, look at your path and look at my path. Yeah, I'm not perfect, and I just messed up, and I dishonored you, but, I, but I'm not wanting to kill you. And, and look at, you're, you're, you're trying to kill me. Where does that kind of anger come from? So you can be sure I will never harm you. Who is the king of Israel trying to catch anyway? Should he spend his time chasing the one who is as worthless as a dead dog or a single flea? May the Lord therefore judge between us uh, which, which of us is right and punish the guilty one. He is my advocate and he will rescue me from your power. When David had finished speaking, Saul called back, Is that really you, my son David? Then he began to cry. I think this is a, a human moment for Saul. A lot of times we think they're, 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 they're uh, characters that you're all evil or you're all good. And I think David and Saul shows us that David can be evil too, right? And Saul here looks back and he says, my son, is that you? I think Saul really was tormented by how he felt about David. Then he began to cry and he said to David, you are a better man than I am for you have repaid me good for evil. Yes, you have been amazingly kind to me today, for when the Lord put me in a place where you could have killed me, you didn't do it. Who else would let his enemy get away, from, uh, get away when he had him in his power? May the Lord reward you well for, this, for the kindness you have shown me today. And now I realize that you are surely going to be king, and that the kingdom of Israel will flourish under your rule. Now swear to me by the Lord that when that happens, you will not kill my family and destroy my line of descendants. So David promised this to Saul with an oath. Then Saul went home, and David and his men went back to their stronghold. David's refusal to kill Saul wasn't cowardly. In fact, it was courageous, and it was humble. Now, here's the cool thing. David doesn't passively sit by and say, you know, Saul, you're totally right. No, he speaks out about how Saul is in the wrong. He boldly challenges Saul and says, you're trying to kill me. That's not okay. God is going to judge you one way or another, but that's God's role. That's not mine, right? Like he honors still that Saul is the king, even though he's been anointed as king. Patient humility doesn't mean we're passive. It means we're passionately pursuing God at his pace and in his direction. David wants to serve God and not build his own kingdom. Now, this is very different from Saul. 
because he is surrendering to God and following him boldly, but also with a humility that's so distinct from, Paul's, from Saul's uh, pridefulness. And, um, and also Saul recognizes David's heart and his character, and he says, hey, you know what? You've proven today you're going to be a much better king than I am, and Israel is going to flourish under your rule. And so he sees that goodness, and he pleads. He doesn't beg for his own life. He says, please don't kill my family. And David promises that there will be no hostile takeover. So here's the big idea this morning. God's sovereignty gives us confidence and rest. Now, what do I mean by that? If we have a little God, we're going to have a little confidence and a little rest because we'll have to have confidence in ourselves. We're going to have to make rest for ourselves. But if we have a big God who is sovereign and powerful, we can trust him. Now, here's the cool thing, is that that confidence, if we have confidence in who God is, it's on his shoulders, it's not on mine. So I can have confidence, not in myself, but in God. That no matter what, you know, what you meant for harm, God meant for good. Even God can even use the rough stuff to grow me, to work in me, to work through me, right? So I can have patient confidence. And what about the rest part? If we are humble and we recognize it's on God's shoulders... I can find rest. That's the beauty of, of, of uh, Sabbath, is that when we take a break, and I like how Rich says it, to, to Sabbath is to do no necessary thing. We don't have to make the world keep turning because <laughs> we realize we're not the ones who do that. We can actually step back and realize that God's in control and I'm just along for the ride. There's something profound that happens every time we take Sabbath and we just say, I am not going to do anything. I'm going to rest. I personally struggle with feeling guilt when I Sabbath because I feel like I need to be productive. I need a productive. And and that's just not the case. So God's sovereignty gives us confidence and rest. I love how we get to see David's journal. And every week we're going to try to, as much as possible, find uh, a psalm that goes with the situation. And so this morning we're going to close out with Psalm chapter 57. And I like, I like how it says at the, at the top, um, it says, From the time he fled from Saul and went into the cave. We get to see what was going through his mind, through his heart. Now, whether this was in the moment or if this is later on as he was reflecting on it, and I also love how it says, To the tune of do not destroy. For some reason, my, my 80s and 90s brain just is like symphony of destruction or something like that, right? Like, I don't know if this really goes well with that type of music, but I mean, do not destroy sounds pretty like hard metal, you know, so. But I love how he says this. He says in, ver- in chapter one, have mercy on me, O God, have mercy. I look to you for protection. I will hide beneath the shadow of your wings until the danger passes by. Reliance on God's mercy. Verse 2, I cry out to God most high, to God who will fulfill his purpose for me. Surrender to God's sovereignty. Verse 3, he will send help from heaven to rescue me, disgracing those who hound me. My God will send forth his unfailing love and faithfulness. Acceptance of God's love. Verses 4 and 5, I am surrounded by fierce lions who greedily devour human prey, whose teeth pierce like spears and arrows, whose tongues cut like swords. Be exalted, O God, above the highest heavens. May your glory shine over all the earth. Selfless worship of God. Verses 6 and 7, My enemies have set a trap for me. I am weary from distress. They have dug a deep pit in my path. But they themselves have fallen into it. My heart is confident in you, O God. My heart is confident. No wonder I can sing your praise. Confidence in God's character. And then the rest of the the chapter. Wake up, my heart. Wake up, O lyre and harp. I will wake the dawn with my song. I will thank you, Lord, among all the people. I will sing your praises among the nations, for your unfailing love is as high as the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the highest heavens. May your glory shine over all the earth. Does that sound like a man fearing for his life as he's running and hiding? 
This sounds like he already has victory. <laughs> this sounds like he has confidence and he can find rest in who God is. This is what I want my life song to be like. Yeah, there's tough stuff going on. There are hard things out there. But God is good. I can have reliance on his mercy. I can surrender to his sovereignty. I can accept his love. I can engage in selfless worship of God and I can have confidence in God's character. So, to move from knowing to doing, from belief to action. I'm going to ask us to do two things this week. Number one, ask God to reveal anything that stirs up pride or impatience in us. Ask God to reveal us why we struggle with it so much. Why, in the midst of this circumstance, in the midst of this situation, in the midst of this relationship, why am I either prideful, impatient, or overwhelmed, or distraught, or whatever it might be, right? Our feelings are the warning lights that show us what's going on under the surface, right? And then the second thing is this. Confess to God any areas of our life that we're tempted to get ahead of him, to take things into our own hands, to sacrifice integrity at the altar of expediency. And I lied. There's a third one. Ask God to give us a heart like David's that is after God's own heart. Yes, we're not perfect. We mess up. We struggle. Sometimes we can be really, really awful. But yet, can we regularly surrender these things to God and ask him to give us a new heart in the midst of it all? The cool thing is, is that the battle has already been won. Jesus died on the cross. Our sins are gone. We are made new. Like, these are all done we just need to accept it. We need to surrender. When we are fighting with that flesh, with that sin, with those struggles, we, all we need to do is just surrender that to God and say, I am washed clean. I am pure. I am forgiven. I am loved. I, am, I have God's power in my life. That's the reality. Do I believe that? Do I walk in that victory? Do I walk in that strength? Because it's already been done. I don't have to go out and fight on my own. I need to follow the path where God is leading me. And so this morning, we're going to actually wrap up with celebrating communion together to celebrate what made that possible for us. Jesus gathered his followers and said, this is my body, this is my blood. It is broken and shed for you. This is what gives you victory, what I've done for you. And so when we have the opportunity to come together and celebrate communion, we get to say, God, thank you for this. I didn't deserve this. I can't pay this back. I'm, I'm not going to be put on a payment plan for the rest of my life. This isn't some looming debt hanging over my head for the rest of my life. This is given freely. And so this morning, if, if you have put your faith in Jesus, whether it be years ago or yesterday or in this very moment, this table's for you. You get to celebrate what Jesus has done for you. If, if you haven't made that surrender yet, maybe you've been told that you're not worthy and you haven't done enough or, or whatever, if you've had doubts or whatever, like don't let that stand in the way because this is the greatest gift we will ever receive in our lives. Surrender to him. Trust his goodness. And that's the thing. You're not surrendering to me you're not surrendering to this church. You're not surrendering to some, some group or some religion. You're surrendering to a person of Jesus who loves you, who sees you, who notices you, who deeply cares about you. When you are going down those paths and it gets rocky and cliffy and, and scary and hard and hurtful, you're not alone because he is right there with you through it all. He wants to lead you to freedom, to forgiveness, to hope, to joy, to love, to all the things that he has for us in the reality in, in all those situations. So as the band closes us out, I'd encourage you to do this. Just, just talk with God. If there's something on your heart that, as we've been talking this morning, if there's something on your heart that you just want to get off your chest or express or surrender, if there's something you know you need to just lay down at the foot of the cross, that he paid for that, he, he forgave that, um, then just express that to him. Or, or maybe it's something of just, God, I just want to hear from you. And maybe it's going to be the words of the songs. Maybe it's something that we talked about this morning. Maybe the Spirit's going to say something different to you, right? But just receive that. 
And when you're ready, we have two songs. If we need to keep playing, whatever, that's fine. But, but uh, just come on up, and you can take one of the, the, the bread, or, or we have gluten-free and things, and you can dip it into one of the cups. And, and, uh, and when you do that, just say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you so much for your gift. I accept it. I want to walk in the reality of that today, tomorrow, and the rest of my life. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your love. God, I thank you for the story of, of David and Saul. God, I pray that we can see ourselves in the, in, the, in the different characters and the different struggles. Sometimes we feel like David and we're getting kicked around, we're getting chased, we're getting hounded, we're getting beat up, and it's just not fair. Sometimes we feel like Saul and, and we just don't know why we keep on doing the things that we do. We don't want to, but yet we keep on falling back into the same old stuff over and over again. But God, you loved David, and you also loved Saul. God, I pray that we can surrender ourselves to you. God, that we can walk in the reality of what you've done for us, and you want to do in us, and also what you want to do through us. God, this world is hurting. It is struggling. God, make us your light. Reflect your light through us. God, we want to see this world changed for you. God, just restore us, renew us, revive us. God, I pray that this, this morning we can feel that weight being taken off. God, that we can experience that love, that acceptance, that forgiveness, that peace, that hope, that joy. No matter what we've been dealing with this week, no matter what we brought in with us this morning, and no matter what we're facing this afternoon or this week, God, I pray that we can walk with a lightness that comes from you. God, help us as we're in whatever cave we might be in to be able to say, wake up my soul, wake up my heart. I want to wake up the hills around me because I'm praising you so loud. Because God, you are good and I surrender to that. I trust that. So God, this morning, if there's anybody here that, that, that maybe has just been struggling in their, in their walk, Maybe they've known you for a while, but maybe they've just kind of grown cold. And God, I pray that you would just renew us. God, that we can commit ourselves to just investing in that relationship, to surrendering to you. God, if there's anybody here this morning that hasn't ever taken that step, God, I pray that, that this would be the morning where their eternity's changed forever. God, that they can walk in your truth in that relationship with you. God, we surrender all these things to you and pray these things in your amazing name.